it's Sue here and welcome to another of our Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcasts. Because in our episode today, we have the first part of our latest In Conversation session with fabulous expert, Professor Barry Schwartz. And if you don't know Barry's research, then you may have come across the research of the book, The Paradox of Choice. And in this conversation, we talked about the research around decision-making. We explored key tips on how to perhaps improve our decision-making and our subsequent well-being around the big things and the small things. And his insights in perhaps how we can narrow our choices, um, improve outcomes through maybe good enough is often good enough, and also ways to make ourselves happier through our choices. Oh, and making choices that don't allow you to go back on them. That was an interesting one. So some awesome insights here. So please join me now for the first part of our conversation with the fabulous and delightful Barry Schwartz. All right, well, we might have some more people jump on, but it's a couple of minutes past, so I would really love to get started. Um, I'm really honoured that we are joined by the fabulous Barry Schwartz this morning, because, or this afternoon in his time, because um, he might not know it, but many of you who've done our diploma know I'm a bit of a fan of his work. Um, uh, we talk about the paradox of choice on the last day of the diploma. We talk about um, the too much, too little. And I was really honoured when Barry decided to uh, uh, join us on our Learn With Sue session for a bit of a conversation this morning. So welcome, Barry. It's awesome to have you on. You're very kind. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm sorry I can't see the faces of these people. They're uh, all quite beautiful. They're all smiling right <laughs> now, I can guarantee it. <laughs> hello, to, hello to all of you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Beautiful. Well, everybody will start posting questions and comments in chat as we go, and we will uh, explore lots of different areas, I'm sure, as we go through. Um, but I want to start off, obviously, one of the areas that you sort of are known for is around this sort of decision making choice. So I'd love to just jump straight into that. And it seems like the science has sort of um, really spanned quite a few decades now of the challenges of too much choice and the benefits of too much choice. So start us off with how did you even get into this in the first place? Well, you know, I this is a longer story than you probably imagine. I have I spent 20, I spent 20 years criticizing the sort of economic market based approach to life and well-being. I thought that, you know, there was there were grotesque inequalities in the economy. People were mistreated. Um crap was being sold as if it was worth something. People were being forced to distort their lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all in, in the pursuit of false gods. And what stopped my criticism was the counter argument that, yeah, there are imperfections in the market, but the market caters to freedom of choice. No one is telling people what to buy, what to do. And what could be more important than freedom of choice? And, you know, that kind of stopped me because freedom of choice is really a very good thing. Uh, and, y y you know, I didn't have an alternative that would preserve choice, an alternative to the market. So I kind of felt like my criticism was blunted by that. <laughs> and, then, and then this paper appeared by Sheena Iyengar and Mark Lepper, which I make a big deal of in my book, showing that when you give people lots of jams to choose from, they're very enthusiastic about it, but they can't pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. 
they can't figure out which jam to buy. So they're happy about it, but then they're frozen, they're paralyzed. And this was the first piece of evidence that although choice is good, there can be too much of a good thing. Mm. So that's what got me down that road. And they did a bunch of studies that showed this. And not only are people paralyzed, but they'll, they'll make worse decisions when there are lots of options, especially if they're complex. Uh, and they'll be less satisfied with the decisions that they make because it's so easy to imagine that some alternative would have been better than the old the alternative they chose. So you're giving people exactly what they want, options, 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 and it is not serving them well. Mm. So I ended up writing a book, both about the problem of uh, paralysis and about some of the reasons why, even when we choose from a large set, we're le- and choose well from a large set, we're less satisfied. So that's what got me, that's what got me onto it. Um, um, you know, also not irrelevant. One of my children, I I have no trouble making choices, and I would very much like it if the number of options available were three or fewer in pretty much every domain you can think of. Yeah. Um, you know, when when I go to watch a movie on Netflix, I end up spending forty minutes <laughs> trying what scrolling and no time watching. So. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm happy with a small choice set, but one of my kids was completely paralyzed by, you know, when she went shopping in the fall to get school, to get her outfits for the coming school year, she just couldn't, she couldn't buy anything and she'd come home miserable. Uh, You know, it wasn't a problem that I had when I was growing up because we didn't have as as much material resource. So there were constraints on what I could consider. She, we weren't rich, but she had very few constraints. And I saw, A, she couldn't decide. And B, when she did decide, she right away wanted to return it. She, yeah. sure, sure, she made a mistake. And she really suffered. You know, these were trivial decisions in the grand scheme of things. But she was 12, 13 years old. They didn't feel trivial to her. Yeah. And, uh, and it caused her an enormous amount of distress. So I had a kind of in-home demonstration of what the Sheena Iyengar's paper showed in the laboratory. Um, so, so now I could criticize e- economics f- full-throatedly because even choice <laughs> tur- turned out to be a very mixed blessing. Well, let, let's just pick up on that first because I want to look at what the science tells us and then what we can do about it. So um, I loved that research because, um, to your point, it showed, yeah, if you gave 20 options, people are less likely to actually buy a single option, whereas if you buy right. six if you show six options, they're more likely to buy. Um, so from a, a real life perspective, bearing in mind, we do live in a world that has lots of choice. And I have to say, and, and I, I read your book years ago, and I, I read it, reread it uh, again, or well, lots of bits of it yesterday. And, um, and I, I remember when I previously read it, and again, the highlight of the number of things in supermarkets. And yes. I'm actually really glad that I don't live in wherever your supermarket was, because that seems huge to me. Um, but we do live in this space now where there is a lot more choice, a lot more choice of which career I should take, which job I should go for, where I should live, what I eat, what I wear, those sorts of things. From your research, what can we do to try and increase our well-being, if you like, by potentially narrowing our choice? Well, there are a couple of things. Um, 
First of all, let me say there's a paper that I'm a co-author of that just recently came out. That was a survey in Brazil, India, China, the U.S., and two other large population between the six countries where we did the survey of almost half the world's population lives. And the questions that we asked in various, various different domains, consumer goods, education, career, et cetera, et cetera, political uh, 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 alternatives. We asked, do you think you have too much choice too little choice or the right amount. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that the problem for the overwhelming majority of people in the world is too little choice. And so what my book is about and what Sheena's research was about and all the research that followed it is a, pro is a rich person's problem. Mm -hmm. A rich person living in a democratic society's problem. Yeah. It is not the world's problem. Uh, in addition, it's worth saying that we asked people if they, if, if they thought that having too little choice was worse for their well-being than having too much, and they overwhelmingly said yes. So not only do more people think they have too little in the way of options than too many, but, most, but more people think that having too few options is a bigger hardship than having too many options. Mm -hmm. So it's worth putting this finding and what I'm best known for in a broader worldwide context and acknowledging that the problems that most people in the world would trade uh, their problems for ours in a heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, what, which, of course, in one way makes it even worse because it's not resource free to provide all these options for people. And these resources could be deployed to improve the lives of people all over the place. And yeah. instead, we're just wasting them, if you'll pardon my French, pissing them away, <laughs> making people worse off by giving them options um, that they say they want, but they should. So what can you do about it? I think the single most important thing you can do, and this is, I discuss in my book, this is work that I did with colleagues, is to adjust, is to set your standards mm -hmm. right. And we, I make a distinction in the book between people who, for whom only the best will do, mm -hmm. call them maximizers, yep. and people who want good enough, satisficers. And you may have, low standards for what's good enough in some domains, high standards in other domains, but in no domain do you think that you have to keep searching until you find the best. Mm -hmm. And if you adopt an attitude that good enough is good enough, your search becomes self-limiting because you don't have to examine every option. You just examine options. And as soon as you find one that meets your standard, you stop looking. And you don't look back. So even if there are 250 different kinds of uh, cookies, biscuits, I don't know what you call them in Australia, in the, super, <laughs> uh, in the on the supermarket shelf, you look at three or four and you find oh, that looks good. And then you pick it. Yeah. And the rest are, aren't even there from your point of view. So I think this is the single most important strategy 
that people can follow. You're not going to pass legislation that says there can only be 10 kinds of cookies in the market. <laughs> so you have to find a way to make it so that you only see 10 kinds of cookies yeah. in the market and you ignore the rest. And I think that's the, that's the best way to do it. And let me also say, the book was published 20 years ago. The internet was a pretty, made a pretty trivial contribution to our daily life. When you look at the choices that are available online, it makes my tour through the supermarket seem trivial. Yeah. You know, you've now essentially got an infinite set of options in virtually every category you can think of. So the problem, as bad as it was then, is much worse now, I would say. So that, I think, is the best thing that people can do. Learn that, teach yourself that, acknowledge that, good enough is almost always good enough. And this is a hard one. This applies just as much to important decisions as it does to trivial ones. Mm -hmm. You know, what I hear from people is, you know, you're right. I don't need the best genes. Good enough genes will do. I don't need the best um, uh, cr uh, crackers. Good enough crackers will do. But I want the best job and I sure as hell want the best romantic partner. <laughs> yes. And I think this is wrong. I think you want a good enough job and a good enough romantic partner. Who is the best romantic partner exactly? How many people do you need to examine before you <laughs> find the best romantic partner? Uh, you know, it just seems as though when the stakes go up, your standards should go up. And, and you know, how do we describe people who are satisficers? We say they are settling. Yeah. Settling is not a neutral word. Settling is a negative word. It means that people are using standards that are too low. Oh, you're just settling for instead of seeking out something better. And I think we have to find a way to overcome that attitude. And it's really not easy. Hmm. Uh, everything in the media is pushing us in exactly the opposite direction. So thinking about that for a moment and sort of digging in a little bit deeper. Um, so one of the things that I know I find if I go to a restaurant that's got loads of things on the menu, I find it really useful because I'm a vegetarian or pescatarian. So it automatically cuts out half the menu. Right. So right. I'm not wasting, and, and I do a lot of stuff on neuroscience, so I talk about brain fuel. I'm not wasting my brain fuel thinking about all of these things. What do I feel like? What do I not? It narrows it down. Even if you've got five things on the menu, by the time you take out the meat dishes, you're only left with two, so it's a pretty right. easy. Um, but the thing that I think is interesting, and I know you've done some work on this, and Dan Gilbert did some great work on this, is the satisfaction once we've chosen. So I remember one of his uh, pieces of research on this was people who did a course, a photography course or something, and at the end of the course, they were given a choice of which uh, photo they wanted to take. They had it made up as a poster, which one do you want? Some people were basically told, make your choice, there's no chance to swap it. Some people were told, you can make your choice and you can swap it out within two weeks. And what was really interesting was then the satisfaction that they measured. If I had a yep. chance of swapping, I was less satisfied. So what are your thoughts about that sort of research, about our, our option of returning things? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think that's a really important paper of his, and I discuss it in the book, and I discuss it when I when I give talks, if I have enough time to, um, it, the distinction he makes is between what he calls reversible and non-reversible decisions. Reversible. And, and, and his argument is that when we make a non-reversible decision, 
we deploy all of these psychological tools that we have to make ourselves feel better about the decision. You're stuck with it. So rationalize it, you know, downplay what's bad about it. And so, you know, all this cognitive dissonance reduction. So you end up feeling good about a decision that maybe wasn't a good decision. Mm. If it's reversible, you don't do all that work. And the result is that however good it feels when you make it is how good it feels a week later because you haven't bolstered it. And here's the kicker. Even though it's a reversible decision, people tend not to reverse the decision. <laughs> you know, I'm... if you if you could bring it back, then maybe you're better off this way. You know, you, you, you live with it for a few days. I made a mistake. I'm going to bring it back and get a different one. But people don't. Some people do. The reason that that retailers can make money back guarantees is that they know that people are not going to do it. Yeah. They're just going to live with what they've got. And if Gilbert's work is right, if there's a money back guarantee, you'll live with the vacuum you bought and curse every day that you didn't get a better one. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's really, really an important uh, finding. And if you ask people here, we have an audience. If you ask people if there were two stores side by side with the same merchandise and one of them had a no return policy and one of them had a liberal return policy, which store would you shop in? I would say 100% of people would shop in the store that has a liberal return policy. Yeah. And if Gilbert is right, 100% of people would be making a mistake. So we need to go to the one with the no return policy. No return. And then you find a way to, you know, to see the silk purse in the sow's ear or something. Yeah. So I think that's quite an important finding. Uh, it's a his. really interesting one because we recently moved house and for about a year or so before, whenever we came up to this area, um, there was a particular house that stood on its own that we would look at and we go, oh, wouldn't it be nice to live there one day? And then, of course, we started shopping for said house. And we went to that one amongst many others and we looked at it and it was a, probably a bit outside of our price range. Um, and anyway, we ended up buying a different one. But now every time I drive past that house, which is fairly, fairly frequently, I've already in my head gone, well, I wouldn't want to live there because it's behind a, a, a wall. It's away from other people. It doesn't have any neighbours. I chat to my neighbours all the time. Uh, yes, the pool's much bigger and that sort of thing. But then we'd have to have a ride on mower because there was so much land. And uh, now I'm only three minutes from the beach. That would be a good 15 minutes walk from the beach. So I've already rationalised why this huge, wonderful house wouldn't have been better, which is good. <laughs> it is good. And of course, there, this is a, in some sense a reversible decision. But it's really hard to reverse a decision like buying a house. Just and you know, there, it's there are interesting implications of this in the U.S. It used to be much harder to terminate a marriage than it is now. And I, I, I don't have, any, I can't prove what I'm about to say is true. But I have a feeling that a lot of what undoes marriages is a collection of relatively small things that accumulate and become a big thing. Mm -hmm. And when it's easy to get out of a mistake, there's nothing sort of pushing you to find ways to ameliorate these problems or minimize these problems or talk through these problems. They just keep accumulating because it's not that hard to say, publicly, look, we made a mistake. 
and start again. Um, and, you know, I, I, some marriages are clearly a mistake and people need to end them. Uh, you know, they suffer in them. But I have a feeling that there are lots of marriages or uh, other kinds of close, you know, intimate relationships where um, it, it wasn't a mistake so much as accumulation of small things that gradually drove people nuts. <laughs> uh, and they would have found a way to work through them if getting out was hard. Yeah. And, uh, and they don't bother when getting out is easy. Okay. So, so I, you know, that, I, as I say, I have no empirical evidence that what I just said is true, <laughs> but. Um, well, you've been in your marriage for over 50 years. So maybe there's something to be said there. <laughs> 50, 50, 55, in fact. Yeah. Very good. Long right, time. I'm going to come to a couple of really good points in chat. And I love that people are starting to put things in there. So um, Tanya's mentioned about the marketing that obviously does push us in the direction of, as you said, sort of more choice um, and being dissatisfied. And so I guess to your point around the sort of the different countries, if we have more choice, other people would like more choice. But we're also saying we need less choice for our well-being. So how do we how do we work that out? Because Marg said, you know, fewer choices in poorer countries have a detrimental effect. But right. we also know that in the richer countries, having too much choice has a negative effect. So this is the way this applies in a lot of different domains. But I first started thinking about it in connection with choice. We tend to think as relatively simple minded social scientists that the relation between independent and dependent variables, in this case, the number of options and your satisfaction, we tend to think that it's what mathematicians, statisticians call monotonic. It goes in one direction. Mm -hmm. It may not be a straight line. It may flatten out. You know, 10 options gives you a certain amount of satisfaction. Adding another 20 doesn't add much, but it never changes direction. I think there's almost nothing in life where that curve describes us. I think what is much more common is that some of it is good, more of it is better, and a point is reached where the curve bends and starts to, to turn down. Um, you know, some amount of courage is good, too much courage becomes recklessness. Yeah. Some amount of honesty is good. Too much honesty hurts other people. There's a sweet spot. And we don't know where the sweet spot is. We don't know where it is in, with respect to courage. We don't know where it is with respect to honesty. We certainly don't know where it is with respect to choice. And chances are pretty good that the sweet spot varies between people. And it varies from one domain to another. There's a book I wrote that has not been read by as many people as the choice book on wisdom. I wrote it with a co-author and the whole, the significant point of the book, it, it's all based on Aristotle's understanding of how you achieve um, authentic happiness, what it takes. And Aristotle famously talked about the importance of the mean. And what he meant by the mean was not the average he meant the right amount. Yes. Some amount of curiosity is good. Too much curiosity paralyzes you. You need the right amount. And he said, we don't know 
where the right amount is. You find out by living, you know, you, the only way you know that you have enough is by experiencing too much. And so there's a certain sense in which the reason we are satisfied with eight options in the supermarket is that we now know what life is like with 38 options in the supermarket. <laughs> yeah. And if we hadn't had that experience, we would not have known that yeah. it's not even diminishing returns. It actually turns the curve down. We're worse off. So, so my sense is that it's a very hard question to answer. How much is enough? What's the right amount? Uh, it takes work. If you're a marketer and you want to know how many versions of your product to put in the market, there's no formula. You have to do the research and find out when you start confusing and frustrating people instead of satisfying them. Mm -hmm. and, and then you dial back the number of options that you're providing. Um, I've given a lot of talks over the years to, you know, sort of market like organizations, commercial organizations. And that's always the question they ask. Okay, there can be too much choice. What's the right amount? And mm -hmm. I say, I can't answer that question. You have to answer that question for yourself. And it's a hard question to answer. You have to do the research mm -hmm. and find out what the right amount is. When you're selling soft drinks, the right amount is likely to be different than when you're selling houses. Mm -hmm. I don't, there's no easy way to answer the question. It is a very important question for people to answer with respect to their own lives, as well as, you know, with respect to how can I be a successful marketer of my goods and services? Yeah. So that's, you know, I, I, it's probably not a satisfactory answer because it basically says this is a very hard question and I don't know the answer, <laughs> but, but it's, it has the virtue of being honest. Yeah, and thank you, because it's interesting if you think from a sales perspective, a lot of times people say give give um, people three options, they'll probably pick the middle one. Right. Um, so, um, but Teresa's asked a really good question. So the importance of um, regret. So we often talk in our work about emotions and the emotions are data, they're information, they're trying to tell us something. So if we think about different emotions, they are trying to tell us something. So Teresa's asked about regret as an important emotion for learning and growth when it comes to choice, i.e. feeling regret about a choice. Does it then help us um, grow and learn so that we don't make that stupid choice again? What are your thoughts about how that plays out? Well, here too, um, you know, it, 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 it seems to some people the, the modern way to argue that regret isn't simply a negative emotion. Don't look back. I think that is a catastrophically bad way to think about life and about regret. To me, what regret does is it puts mistakes in italics and boldface. It helps us avoid making those mistakes again. It helps us appreciate that we have to make amends for some of the actions that we've done in the past. So I think it's a good emotion. What's not good is inappropriate regret. And now someone's going to say, well, what makes it inappropriate? And I'm <laughs> going to say the same thing I said about choice. I don't know the answer to that. It does not seem to me to make sense to regret a decision because you think somewhere out there was a better option that you either were too lazy or too stupid to find. Uh, so, you know, you need to modulate regret and, and regret things that are appropriately regrettable and don't regret things that are, that there's no reason to regret. And it helps a lot, by the way, to be a satisficer here because you won't, 
if you're looking for good enough chance, you know, once in a while we make a mistake, but for the most part, you won't regret the thing you've chosen from the restaurant menu. You'll get it. You'll eat it. You'll say, well, this is, this is very tasty. They did the beans just right. And the fish is moist. Uh, I'm pleased that I ordered this without thinking about which of the other options might have been even, even better. Um, so, so rather than trying to cure yourself of regret, I think what you want to do is cure yourself of seeking situations that are virtually guaranteed to make you feel regret, yeah. even when you shouldn't. Thank you so much for listening to this first part of our discussion with Barry uh, as part of our Loma Sue Walk and Talk podcast. If you would like to continue to listen to the rest of that fabulous conversation, including really interesting insights into the impact of luck with choice, judgment and well-being, then please consider joining us as a member of our Learn with Sue membership forum. So as well as invitations to live sessions with many other experts in joining our live learning events there are courses research reviews and much much more so jump on to learnwithsue.com.au and maybe we'll see you as a new member of our membership community thank you so much and wishing you a wonderful week ahead <music>